0: All right, everyone, we're on our final episode of the year. And that means that today is the last time you'll hear me ask for a donation to your local NPR station until next year. So please, if you haven't yet, take a minute to show your support for the TED Radio Hour. Go to donate.npr.org tedradio TED Radio. Give a gift, big or small. It is so appreciated by all of us here at NPR. And thanks. Okay, about today's show, this episode is all about remarkable transformations despite extraordinary challenges. It first aired in September of 2014, but this time around, we're trying something a little different. We've gone back to one of our speakers, and we have an update on what's new with his research since we last spoke. His name is Hugh Herr, and after losing his legs in a climbing accident, He became a biophysicist who specializes in prosthetics and wearable robotics. And Hugh says that in the coming decades, the synthetic limb will actually become a part of the human body, transforming our very idea of what it means to be human. This episode is called Transformation. Hope you enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks TED Talks uh, Ted. TED TED Technology
1: Entertainment Design
0: Design Is that really what what's TED for? <laughs> I've never known that Delivered it's at, at TED conferences around the world
2: It's the gift of the human imagination
1: We've had to believe in impossible things The true
2: nature of reality beckons from just beyond Those talks,
0: those ideas, adapted for radio From NPR Guy Raz. And on the show today, transformation. Stories and ideas about becoming a completely different person. Later in the show, we'll hear an update from biophysicist Hugh Herr on how prosthetic technology will transform what it means to be human.
2: I believe in the coming decades, the synthetic limb will become part of the body and will become fully integrated uh, within the nervous system.
0: Hugh Herr comes back later in the show, but first, imagine rejecting everything you were taught to believe and starting over. When you think about your life and the arc of your life, do you think of it as a transformation? That you gave yourself a second chance to have a completely different life?
3: Well, That's, that's a very difficult question. Um,
0: this is Zach
3: Ibrahim. I, I certainly, I, I guess I would use the term transformation in some way. I'm very different um, in my beliefs than I was when I was, I mean, even 10 years ago.
0: And really, you could say his transformation began more than 20 years ago, one November night in 1990. Zach Ibrahim told that story on the TED stage.
3: On November 5th, 1990, a man named Al-Sayed Nasser walked into a hotel in Manhattan and assassinated Rabbi Meir Kahana, the leader of the Jewish Defense League. Nasser was initially found not guilty of the murder, but while serving time on lesser charges, he and other men began planning attacks on a dozen New York City landmarks, including tunnels, synagogues, and United Nations headquarters. Thankfully, those plans were foiled by an FBI informant. Sadly, the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center was not. Nosser would eventually be convicted for his involvement in the plot. Al will say it, is my father.
0: Zach Ibrahim was just seven years old at the time. He was too young to know that his dad was a member of a jihadist cell. And eventually, he'd get life in prison. I know you were um, really young, but I mean, do you do you remember asking, "Where's Dad?"
3: Um, I I did. I was told that that he had been injured and that he was in the hospital, recuperating. And the next thing I know, we are riding in our station wagon to Rikers Island to visit him for the first time.
0: And Zach basically accepted what a lot of his dad's friends told him that his father was a hero.
3: Um, I had one man who, every time he saw me, he would give me a $100 bill, apparently for what my father had done. I actually bought my first Game Boy with a $100 bill that this guy had given me.
0: Today, 25 years later, Zach Ibrahim is a peace activist. But to get there would require a kind of rebirth.
3: It was a very slow process. It took a long time, but I had to kind of reevaluate the way I saw my father and, and his belief system. And so I had to basically realize that, that my father was an extremist and that he was willing to take innocent people's lives um, for his cause.
0: To realize that, to experience that kind of transformation meant he had to make a choice. A choice to change.
3: I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1983 to him, an Egyptian engineer, and a loving American mother and grade school teacher, who together tried their best to create a happy childhood for me. It wasn't until I was seven years old that our family dynamics started to change. My father exposed me to a side of Islam that few people, including the majority of Muslims, get to see. A few months prior to his arrest, he sat me down and explained that for the past few weekends, he and some friends had been going to a shooting range on Long Island for target practice. He told me I'd be going with him the next morning. We arrived at Calverton shooting range, which, unbeknownst to our group, was being watched by the FBI. When it was my turn to shoot, my father helped me hold the rifle to my shoulder and explained how to aim at the target about 30 yards off. That day, the last bullet I shot hit the small orange light that sat on top of the target, and to everyone's surprise, especially mine, the entire target burst into flames. My uncle turned to the other men and in Arabic said, Ibn Abu, like father, like son. They thought they saw in me the same destruction my father was capable of. Those men would eventually be convicted of placing a van filled with 1,500 pounds of explosives into the sublevel parking lot of the World Trade Center's North Tower, causing an explosion that killed six people and injured over a thousand others. These were the men I looked up to. These were the men I called Ammu, which means uncle. By the time I turned 19, I had already moved 20 times in my life. And that instability during my childhood didn't really provide an opportunity to make many friends. Being the perpetual new face in class, I was frequently the target of bullies. So for the most part, I spent my time at home reading books and watching TV or playing video games. And growing up in a bigoted household, I wasn't prepared for the real world. I'd been raised to judge people based on arbitrary measurements like a person's race or religion he would just talk about Jews being evil and um, and I would hear similar things from you know from the men that that were with him um, you know gay people being evil and them wanting to turn you gay so that you would go to hell, too, and just them being, you know, all-around terrible people and a bad influence. And uh, and he used to say things like, um, a bad Muslim is better than a good non-Muslim. Do you ever remember, you know,
0: sort of f- feeling that way, too? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much what indoctrination is. You know, you have authority figures around you telling you that the world is one way, and... You don't get to see another perspective. You know, the the people that, that I felt safe with taught me these things. And so, you know, you just kind of accepted them as fact. One of my first experiences that challenged this way of thinking was during the 2000 presidential elections. Through a college prep program, I was able to take part in the National Youth Convention in Philadelphia. My particular group's focus was on youth violence, and having been the victim of bullying for most of my life, this was a subject in which I felt particularly passionate. The members of our group came from many different walks of life. One day, toward the end of the convention, I found out that one of the kids I had befriended was Jewish. Now, it had taken several days for this detail to come to light, and I realized that there was no natural animosity between the two of us. I had never had a Jewish friend before. And frankly, I felt a sense of pride in having been able to overcome a barrier that, for most of my life, I had been led to believe was insurmountable. Another major turning point came when I found a summer job at Bush Gardens, an amusement park. As chance would have it, I had the opportunity to work with some of the gay performers at a show there, and soon found that many were the kindest, least judgmental people I had ever met. I don't know what it's like to be gay, but I'm well acquainted with being judged for something that's beyond my control. One day, I had a conversation with my mother about how my worldview was starting to change, and she said something to me that I will hold dear to my heart for as long as I live. She looked at me with the weary eyes of someone who'd experienced enough dogmatism to last a lifetime and said, I'm tired of hating people. In that instant, I realized how much negative energy it takes to hold that hatred inside of you.
0: That that must have been so powerful.
3: Um, yeah, you know, that was one of the most transformative times in my life. I I kind of just wanted to let her know where my my mind was starting to go. And when she told me, it felt like she gave me permission to go out into the world and just experience people for who they were instead of trying to fit them into some kind of, you know, category or box of some kind, just to be free in a way.
0: You, you describe what you've done as a choice, that you just, you made a choice, you decided that that you were not going to be this, this person that you were kind of raised to be.
3: Well, I, I don't know that, that, that we're meant to be anything other than the sum of our experiences. And I knew that from my experience that I had, you know, from being bullied that I didn't want to be the bully. And at the same time, I didn't want to be bullied because I I knew what that felt like. Um, The loneliness and the feelings of inadequacy and and self-loathing. I knew that I didn't want to treat people like that. And if I could, I wanted to prevent others from treating people like that so that they didn't have to go through the same thing. Zach Ibrahim is not my real name. I changed it when my family decided to end our connection with my father and start a new life. So why would I out myself and potentially put myself in danger? Well, that's simple. I do it in the hopes that perhaps someone, someday, who is compelled to use violence, may hear my story and realize that there is a better way. That although I had been subjected to this violent, intolerant ideology, that I did not become fanaticized. Instead, I choose to use my experience to fight back against terrorism, against bigotry. I do it for the victims of terrorism and their loved ones for the terrible pain and loss that terrorism has forced upon their lives. For the victims of terrorism, I will speak out against these senseless acts and condemn my father's actions. And with that simple fact, I stand here as proof that violence isn't inherent in one's religion or race, and the son does not have to follow the ways of his father. I am not my father. Thank you.
0: Zach Ibrahim, peace activist. He's the author of the newly released TED book, The Terrorist's Son, a story of choice. You can find out more about it and see Zach's full talk at TED.com. More stories of transformation in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Walmart Grocery Pickup. Getting fresh groceries will never be the same again. With Walmart Grocery Pickup, you don't even have to get out of your car. You just order online and let Walmart personal shoppers do the shopping and loading for you. Save time and visit walmart.com slash grocery. Get $10 off your first order with trial code Don't wait there are more ways to Walmart. First order only, $50 minimum, expires January 31st, 2019. Thanks also to MailChimp. MailChimp wants you to know that they do all kinds of marketing to help small businesses grow, from building beautiful landing pages to retargeting and audience management, and of course, great email marketing. So while it may seem like MailChimp has outgrown their name, that just means their business has grown. MailChimp, they do more
1: than mail.
4: Did you know you can ask Google Home to play NPR podcasts for you? It's easy. Just ask. Like, play the Fresh Air podcast. Use Google Home or Google Assistant to connect with your favorite shows anytime.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, transformation. Stories and ideas about changing everything you are, becoming who you were meant to be. When you, this is a little bit strange, but when you look in the mirror, do you think, God, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a
1: beautiful person. I look great. I think now because it's my work as a model. Yes, I, I do feel beautiful. But there was moments in my life where I never felt beautiful.
0: This is Gina Rosero. She's been a fashion model for about a decade. And to describe Gina as beautiful... Something of an understatement. She is stunning. High cheekbones, long, dark hair, slender. And when she walked onto the TED stage, she stood in front of a huge photo of herself <laughs> in lingerie. You know, it's just unusual.
1: I'm auditioning, basically. <laughs> this is this is a casting call. Maybe someone wants to hire me. <laughs> um,
0: but, of course, you were showing that, that photograph to tell a, a bigger story about your journey.
1: Yeah, it's... It's, it's giving me goosebumps bringing back that memory because it's, it's one of those moments in your life where you're so conscious about what you're about to do and what you're about to do will change your life. Here's Gina's story from the TED stage. The world makes you something that you're not. But you know inside what you are. And that question burns in your heart how will you become that? So when I became a fashion model, I felt that I finally achieved the dream that I've always wanted since I was a young child. My outside self finally matched my inner truth. At that time, I felt like, Gina, you've done it. You've made it. You have arrived. But this past October, I realized that I'm only just beginning. In my case... For the last nine years, some of my neighbors, some of my friends, colleagues, even my agent, did not know about my history. I think in mystery, this is called a reveal. Here is mine. I was assigned boy at birth, based on the appearance of my genitalia.
0: This moment when you spoke on the Ted stage and you revealed this for the first time publicly, it was just like silent. You could hear pin drop and, and you had revealed this thing that you had kept secret from so many people for so long. Yeah. You were born a boy. I mean I mean do you remember thinking as a kid, I'm not a boy.
1: Yeah. So growing up I would always wear this t shirt in my head or the blanket or the fabric if I want my hair to be long and I would wear it in my head. And I remember that moment when my mom asked me, how come you always wear that? And I told her, mom, this is my hair, I'm a girl. Gender has always been considered a fact, immutable. But we now know it's actually more fluid, complex, and mysterious. Because of my success, I never had the courage to share my story not because I thought what I am is wrong, but because how the world treats those of us who wish to break free. Every day, I am so grateful because I am a woman. I have a mom and dad and family who accepted me for who I am. Many are not so fortunate. There's a long tradition in Asian culture that celebrates the fluid mystery of gender. There's a Buddhist goddess of compassion. There's a Hindu um, goddess, Hidra goddess. So when I was eight years old, I was at a fiesta in the Philippines celebrating these mysteries. I was in front of this stage, and I remember out comes this beautiful woman right in front of me. And I remember that moment, something hit me. That is the kind of woman I would like to be. So when I was 15 years old, still dressing as a boy, I met this woman named T.L. She is a transgender beauty pageant manager. That night she asked me, how come you are not joining the beauty pageant? She convinced me that if I joined, that she will take care of the registration fee and the garments. And that night, I won best in swimsuit and best in long gown and placed second runner-up amongst 40-plus candidates. That moment changed my life. Not a lot of people could say that your first job is a pageant queen for transgender woman, but I'll take it. (laughs) In 2001, my mom, who had moved to San Francisco, called me and told me that My green card petition came through that I could now move to the United States. I resisted it. I told my mom, Mom, I'm having fun. I'm here with my friends, I love traveling, being a beauty pageant queen. But then two weeks later, she called me, she said, Did you know that if you moved to the United States, you could change your name and gender marker? That was all I needed to hear. My mom also told me to put two E's in the spelling of my name. She also came with me when I had my surgery in Thailand at 19 years old. At that time in the United States, you needed to have a surgery before you could change your name and gender marker. So in 2001, I moved to San Francisco. And I remember looking at my California driver's license with the name Gina and gender marker F. That was a powerful moment. I mean, for some people, their ID is their license to drive, or even to get a drink. But for me, that was my license to live, to feel dignified. I mean, all of a sudden, my fears were minimized. I felt that I could conquer my dream and move to New York and be a model.
0: So you moved to to New York, and then... You get discovered, you start modeling. Um, How open were you about your past?
1: So when I moved to New York, I made a conscious decision to not fully share about my journey into womanhood. And first, I wasn't ready to talk about it. Second, I just, I knew just people have this misconception about what it means to be trans. And I just don't want to have that conversation first and foremost. And it wasn't until... December last year, 2013, when I told my model agent that I'm a transgender woman. What did what did your agent say? <laughs> when I made the decision to go public about this, oh, Not that's just right. To go I,
0: public, I'm going to go on the TED stage you go
1: public. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Okay, that's right. I need to talk to my agent and and share with him. <laughs> I picked up that phone call. I said, Ron this is what I'm about to do, and this is the story I want to share. And I remember having that pause. And then he said, well, congratulations. I'm proud of you. I am, you know, I'm here. I support you, which is a big sigh of relief. I mean, I remember being, you know, so nervous. So nervous.
0: (laughs) I mean, in that time, because you were a model in New York for more than a decade, were you ever afraid that somebody would, I don't know, find out and it would hurt your career?
1: It's a big yes. I was always in a constant state of paranoia. There's nothing worse than being outed. There's nothing worse than people taking control of your narrative. So I guess subconsciously, I didn't let that fear paralyze me.
0: What happened to get you to decide to do that? Like, What inspired you to say, you know what, I'm going to tell people about
1: my past? I think first... I want to free myself. There's a sense of, you know, I just want to be fully open about things. And also at the same time, I want to give back to the transgender community. Today, this very moment is my real coming out. I could no longer live my truth for and by myself. I want to do my best to help others live their truth without shame, And terror. My deepest truth allowed me to accept who I am. When you think about
0: your life, do you think about it as a life transformed, or do you think about it more of almost like a life restored?
1: I think it's definitely life transformed, and I think I'm still transforming. (laughs) I think I have. I'm in constant evolution especially with the support of my family, that allowed me to just be fully who I am and added with opportunities that was presented to me that I accepted, that I did everything I can to achieve that goal.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think about your story, and, and it's almost like you can't, like, control your circumstances, right? You couldn't control who you were born as. But you, but in some ways, you can shape your future.
1: Certainly. If you are conscious, you know, of what is being presented to you, if you have that consciousness of opportunity, of of really foreseeing a goal or a dream that you have, just do it.
0: Gina Rosero, she's the co-founder of the transgender advocacy group Gender Proud. To find out more about Gina and to see her talk, go to ted.npr.org. Today on the show, ideas about remarkable transformation.
2: I often forget that my limbs are synthetic. That's how well they work. Wow. It's funny. The other day, I accidentally signed up for a pedicure, <laughs> and then I, I realized uh, about a week later that was uh, kind of silly.
0: This is Hugh Her. He's a professor at the MIT Media Lab, where he focuses on wearable robotics and prosthetic technology. and. As you may have figured out, Hugh himself is an amputee. His transformation began the moment his legs were amputated after a climbing accident
2: over 30 years ago. And I was given uh, prosthetic limbs that were passive. Uh, they didn't have any computational intelligence. They didn't have sensors or muscle tendon like actuators. They were really uh, fixed, rigid pieces of wood and, and rubber. Today, the limbs that I'm wearing are computer controlled. Each of my legs has multiple small computers, the the size of your thumbnail. (laughs) Uh, They have many sensors that sense position and speed, acceleration and forces and temperatures and whatnot. And then they have muscle tendon-like actuators. So all this put together enables me to walk and to run and to move over slopes and irregular surfaces and in a very natural way.
0: Losing his legs was Hugh's first transformation. And designing his own was his second. But there's another transformation he has yet to undergo, the third and possibly most profound one yet. Hugh Herr picks up the story from the TED stage.
2: I'm a bionic man, but I'm not yet a cyborg. When I think about moving my legs, neural signals from my central nervous system pass through my nerves and activate muscles within my residual limbs. Artificial electrodes sense these signals, and small computers on the bionic limb decode my nerve pulses into my intended movement patterns. Stated simply, when I think about moving, that command is communicated to the synthetic part of my body. However, those computers can't input information into my nervous system. When I touch and move my synthetic limbs, I do not experience normal touch and movement sensations. If I were a cyborg and could feel my legs via small computers inputting information into my nervous system, it would fundamentally change, I believe, my relationship to my synthetic body. Today, I can't feel my legs. And because of that, my legs are separate tools from my mind and my body. They're not part of me. I believe that if I were a cyborg, I could feel my legs. They would become part of me, part of self.
0: So let's let's kind of break this down a little bit. You talked a little bit about um, this phenomenon that many amputees experience, which is this sort of ghost phantom limb, that, that there's feeling. You, you are aware of the limb, but you obviously can't move it. Um, is the technology that you describe? Is there any connection to to that process?
2: Yeah. So my my legs were amputated in the nineteen eighties using um, a very somewhat primitive form of leg amputation um, that really hasn't changed uh, since the U.S. Civil War. The limb is amputated, then muscles around the amputation point are uh, sutured down at constant length and they're no longer able to move dynamically. Mm. And it turns out those dynamics are important to tell the brain how uh, the body is moving. It's called proprioception. So in our recent work, we've conducted the surgery in a different way where we connect the muscles in a linear fashion so they can move dynamically in agonist-antagonist pairs, telling the brain how the limb is moving. So even though the limb is amputated, when a person thinks and moves their phantom limb, the limb actually feels dynamic. Mm -hmm. It feels as though it moves across uh, a normal range of motion. Wow, I mean,
0: if we are at this point now, what does it mean for somebody, let's say 10 or 20 years in the future, who has lost a limb or maybe was born without a limb or, or multiple limbs, I mean, can you imagine a scenario where that person is essentially, you know, totally mobile, completely able to operate in a way that almost simulates reality, you know, what it's like to have that limb?
2: I do. I I believe in uh, the coming decades, technology will be at such a sophisticated point that we will be able to rebuild a limb uh, after amputation. Where the limb, um, you know a person can manipulate in the case of upper extremity, or walk and run in the case of lower extremity, without experiencing discomfort, they'll be able to think and transmit signals down from their brain through the spinal cord and to the nerves to actuate synthetic motors in the limb. And they'll be able to feel the limb. <laughs> they'll be able to feel the sense of have the sense of touch. Uh, as well as the proprioception, how the limb is positioned and how it moves in space. So with that type of bidirectionality, I think the synthetic limb will become part of the body. It'll cease to become a tool and it'll become fully integrated uh, within the nervous system.
0: I mean, so so can you imagine a future where there are literally going to be humans who are part cyborg and humans who are not?
2: Yeah, my, my definition of a cyborg is where, again, there's a bi-directional link to a designed device, so cyborg function allows, will allow us to feel uh, designed constructs, feel artificial devices as if they're part of us, part of our bodies, part of our identity. In the rehabilitation world, that's critically important, that mm. sense of ownership, that sense of body over the prosthesis. But I think in the future, if we can uh, feel and have ownership over the devices that we use, it will be very enabling and it will really transform humans from not only tool users, but a species for which technology is truly integrated into physiology.
0: When we come back, we'll hear more from Hugh Herr and his vision of a future where there are no disabled people.
2: We actually see a a clear pathway towards that future. Um, If you look across the field of bionics, the key elements now exist in laboratories throughout the world. We can put forth a prosthesis that looks like a biological limb, that moves like a biological limb, and then that feels like a biological limb.
0: I'm Guy Raz and on the show today, Ideas About Transformation. You're listening to the Ted Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Capital One. The CreditWise app recently added dual bureau credit alerts from Experian and TransUnion to help users more quickly identify signs of error, theft, or fraud. Here's CreditWise designer Bev Yang.
1: The alerts that we just released send a user a message so that it's like, hey, just so you know, this is what's different. And they can focus on the new information to decide what they want to do.
0: CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store right now. Thanks also to Yahoo! Small Business. With Yahoo! Small Business, you can easily build a mobile-friendly website for your business, hobby, or personal need in minutes. Select a theme, customize, and launch your business idea online. No coding required. Get the website builder for free when you sign up for a subscription at smallbusiness.yahoo.com today. And one very last thing, don't forget to go to donate.npr.org/tedradio to show your support for our show and for your local public radio station. And thanks. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, transformation. So we were just hearing from Hugh Herr about how the technology of prosthetics has evolved, and how we're moving toward a future where humans will become cyborgs. When you gave your talk, it was uh, the title of it was, "How We'll Become Cyborgs and Extend Human Potential." But I'm curious. I mean, after you gave that talk, did you? Did you face any pushback from people, you know, who, who are amputees, who, who sort of bristled at this idea of becoming cyborgs, of humans becoming cyborgs?
2: Uh, no, not from persons with, with limb amputation. There are some people that, uh, when viewing the talk, uh, I think became concerned or frightened about such a future where we, where we merge our nervous systems into the design world and the design world into us. Um, redefining what the body is, um, what a human being entails. I mean, you can understand
0: that anxiety, right? It's not a completely misplaced fear. What do you say to people when they, when they say, Hugh, this makes me nervous?
2: I mean, clearly there are indeed ethical concerns, but uh, I think it's a natural progression of the human body, of the human state from a world in which uh, largely we live today, where we have to live with our own innate anatomy, our own genetics, into a future world of body alchemy, where the body can be designed, can be transformed, can be sculpted, if you will, to the design of the individual. Um, In the future, individual will be able to change how they think, um, how they experience the world, and their physicality, their ability to move and to run and to leap will be augmented. And so if that is the case, is it going to be or could it be a future where
0: people voluntarily, even people who have limbs and, and have not lost them, that they could voluntarily choose to integrate this technology into their bodies?
2: Sure. My laboratory at MIT, uh, we're developing not only prostheses to be used by persons that undergo a limb amputation, but we're also developing exoskeletons, which are wearable robots that attach to biological limbs in order to make those limbs uh, stronger or more capable in some way. So I feel in the coming decades, bionics will really be part of our society. We'll walk down the streets of major cities in the world and it'll be commonplace to see people walking and running by, uh, augmented by bionics. You know, part of me is really
0: excited, hugely excited about about this technology. And of course, when it comes to people who do not have limbs um, to kind of restore their ability to be completely mobile, but part of me is a little freaked out. You know, by people who who may not need this choosing to kind of become superhumans. I mean, is do you think that I'm crazy to to say that?
2: Um, somewhat. <laughs> um, <laughs> only because. Uh, We today, uh, living in this modern world, are surrounded by augmentation. Uh, We have bicycles that profoundly augment our ability to move from point A to point B at tremendous speeds. And, of course, we have airplanes and we have smartphones and all these technologies that fundamentally augment human capability physically, cognitively, in terms of our memory, and so on. Um, We don't view it as scary and Uh, as really even as augmentative because it's ubiquitous, it's all around us. So as we march into this 21st century, um, there'll just be a greater and greater augmentation. The technology will become more invasive, become more intimate with our nervous systems and be more pronounced in the capacities uh, expressed to augment our capabilities. In this 21st century, designers will extend the nervous system into powerfully strong exoskeletons that humans can control and feel with their minds. Muscles within the body can be reconfigured for the control of powerful motors and to feel and sense exoskeletal movements, augmenting humans' strength, jumping height and running speed. In this 21st century, I believe humans will become superheroes. Humans may also extend their bodies into non-anthropomorphic structures, such as wings, controlling and feeling each wing movement within the nervous system. Leonardo da Vinci said, "...when once you have tasted flight, you will forever walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward, for there you have been, and there you will always long to return."
0: Do you imagine a future where there are no disabled people?
2: Absolutely. Uh, I believe at the twilight years of this century, largely we will have uh, eliminated disability in the world. Wow. And we will, of course, by doing that, we will set the scientific and technological foundation for enhanced uh, human experiences, cognitively, emotionally in terms of our sensory experience and our physicality uh, all these dimensions of what it means to be human will be enhanced through this deep bionic science and presumably i mean this will
0: begin to change who we are as a species i mean this this is sort Absolutely, of yeah. kind of taking over our own evolutionary you know process
2: in the future every individual will have powerful tools that Will enable a person to sculpt or design their very own body, sculpt how they perceive the world, how they think, how they move, um, their very own identity. If we can fundamentally sculpt our bodies, use our very own cells and tissues, like a part of a palette a painter would use to create any sketch or painting, you know, identity itself will be malleable and invariant. That's Hugh Herr. He's the
0: head of the Biomechatronics Group at the MIT Media Lab. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. When we're talking about your life, right, and, and, and this life that you once had, does it does it feel in, in some way that, that you and I are talking about a different person?
4: Yeah. Yeah, because oftentimes it feels like I'm flashing back and just, like, wondering what my face looked like back then, wondering, did I ever smile? Because I don't feel like I smiled back then. (laughs) Just looking back, it's like, wow, like, I can't even believe it sometimes. I mean, I've had moments where I cried for that young man that I was.
0: This is Shaka Senghor. He's a writer and a mentor to young people in Detroit, where he grew up. And here's how he began his story
4: at TED. 23 years ago, at the age of 19, I shot and killed a man. I was a young drug dealer with a quick temper and a semi-automatic pistol. But that wasn't the end of my story. In fact, it was the beginning. There's a story of acknowledgement, apology and atonement, but it didn't happen in the way that you might imagine or think. See like many of you, growing up, I was an honor roll student with dreams of becoming a doctor. But things went dramatically wrong when my parents separated and eventually divorced.
0: Shaka explains that when his parents split up, his grades started to fall. His mom was abusive, both mentally and physically. And so a few years later,
4: he started to sell drugs. At the age of 17, I got shot three times, standing on the corner of my block in Detroit. My friend rushed me to the hospital. Doctors pulled the bullets out, patched me up, and sent me back to the same neighborhood I got shot. Throughout this ordeal, no one hugged me. No one told me I would be okay. No one told me that I would live in fear, that I would become paranoid. But no one told me that one day, I would become the person behind the trigger. 14 months later, I fired the shots that caused the man's death. When I entered prison, I was angry, I was hurt. I didn't want to take responsibility and I reacted with hostility to my confinement. I ran black market stores, I loaned shirts, and I sold drugs that was illegally smuggled into the prison. I had in fact become what the warden of the Miss Reformatory called the worst of the worst. And because of my activity, I landed in solitary confinement for seven and a half years out of my incarceration.
0: And that is so hard to imagine living like that, but I mean, how did you how did you start to go from that place to where you, you eventually got to, to where you are now?
4: You know, it, it kind of grew in stages. Um, I think the first time was uh, I had read Malcolm X's autobiography, just his ability to redeem himself and turn himself around kind of pricked my consciousness in a way to make me think like this is possible. And so literature kept me strong. You know, whenever I felt myself growing vulnerable, to feeling like I was going to go insane or feeling like I couldn't cope, one more day in this little six by nine cell, I would just turn to literature. I would turn to books, and I began. At some point, I began to set my cell up like a classroom, and I would study a different subject each hour, as if I were going to school, and kind of like the tipping point came uh, after I received a a letter from my oldest son. And anytime I would get this letter from my son, it was like a ray of light in the darkest place you can imagine. And on this particular day, I opened this letter and in capital letters, he wrote, my mama told me why you was in prison, murder. He said, dad, don't kill. Jesus watches what you do. Pray to him. Now I wasn't religious at that time, nor am I religious now. But it was something so profound about my son's words. It was the first time in my life that I had actually thought about the fact that my son would see me as a murderer. I sat back on my bunk, and I reflected on something I had read in Plato's Republic, where Socrates stated an apology that the unexamined life isn't worth living. At that point, is when the transformation began. When he wrote that letter, you know, it made me realize that, you know, whatever happened, whether I ever got out of prison or not, that I had a responsibility as a father to give my son an example of what a man should be and what he could be. That's when I began to do the hard work, which was uncovering how did I land in prison in the first place. I just saw it in the most basic, simple way that I would do whatever was necessary to reclaim the parts of me that I knew were good. When I got that letter from my son, I began to write a journal about things I had experienced in my childhood and in prison. And what it did is it opened up my mind to the idea of atonement. Earlier in my incarceration, I had received a letter from one of the relatives of my victim. And in that letter, she told me she forgave me because she realized I was a young child who had been abused and had been through some hardships and just made a series of poor decisions. It was the first time in my life that I ever felt open to forgiving myself.
0: Do you ever think about just the capacity that humans have to regenerate, like for self-regeneration? And for like almost rebirth, yeah. Do you think it's like an, an inherent human capability, or do you think that just some some people yeah. have that ability?
4: Yes, I do. I, I think that human beings are so resilient, and I think that we have failed to acknowledge that. We tend to make transformation a freak show, so to speak, yeah. um, as something that's abnormal or in you know or not. Uh, or like superhuman. It, superhuman, right. Yeah. And I've never thought of it like that. When it, when it comes to my own personal journey, when you are in prison, it's all about authenticity in that environment. You know, if guys think you are trying to play the good guy to get a parole or to get favor from the officers or something like that, they'll prey on that, you know. And, but when they know that it's genuine and it's not based on fear, but it's based on you wanting to be who you were destined to be. They respect and they celebrate that. And what I've realized is that the majority of, of men I encounter had the desire hmm. for something different, something better. Uh, the thing that was lacking was the courage to step out on their own yeah. or for somebody to give them permission to step out on their own. And I, and I think what happened with me is that I learned how to give myself permission. You, you mentioned that, that
0: line from Socrates about the unexamined life not, not being worth living. It sounds weird, but, like, had you not gone through the pain that you went through in your life, you, you may not have had an examined life.
4: It's true. You know, had I not gone through this experience, and I see it, you know, I see it in most people's lives. We, we, You know, the typical trajectory is you get up, you go to work, you pay the bills, you come home, take care of your family, repeat. But I found that life is so much deeper than that. Uh, we have to give ourselves permission to expand and grow and evolve as human beings. That's our nature, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't no. It wasn't like I said, It wasn't didn't come without its challenges. You know, even when I was released from prison, uh, there there are constant challenges, constant battles. Um, I didn't come home to a rosy neighborhood. You know, I came back home to Detroit. You know, the city I grew up in, the friends I grew up around, uh, who some are still in the street culture and and. and living you know half butchered lives through my experience being locked up one of the things i discovered is this the majority of men and women who are incarcerated are redeemable anybody can have a transformation if we create the space for that to happen so what i'm asking today is that you envision a world where men and women aren't held hostage to their past where misdeeds and mistakes doesn't define you for the rest of your life I think, collectively, we can create that reality. And I hope you do, too. Thank you.
0: Shaka Senghor, his talk is at TED.com. After getting out of prison four years ago, he's become a mentor to young people in Detroit. He's also engaged to be married. And the son who wrote him that letter in prison, he's now 22 years old.
1: Going on
2: a vision quest Surf the mountain, ride the crest I've been looking in a new direction The sun is out, I'm getting scored The world is weird from every board. I've been looking in a
0: new direction Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. If you missed any of it, or you want to hear more, or you want to find out more about who was on it, you can visit ted.npr.org Our program was produced by Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Sanaz Meshkinpour, and Neva Grant. Thanks to our partners at TED, Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz. You've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.